0: This is Colorado Matters. From CPR News, I'm Andrea Dukakis. Climate scientists say 2016 is on track to be the hottest year on record, and Colorado is among the states with the fastest warming summers. Climate change and the heat that comes with it raises all sorts of questions about the places we live and work. Take classrooms, for example, where heat makes it tough for kids to concentrate, something CPR reported on earlier this month.
1: It's pretty hard because you're so hot you can't stop moving around
2: and stuff.
0: By mid century, temperatures in Colorado are expected to go up by four degrees. And one group wants to make buildings cooler and more energy efficient by the time that happens. The Rocky Mountain Institute is a nonprofit based in Colorado that focuses on global energy use. Joining us is Victor Oljai, a principal architect with the Institute. Victor, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. We keep hearing how hot it will be due to climate change. How important is it to rethink buildings in this environment?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, Buildings are really important. Actually, it turns out that uh, buildings use most of the electricity uh, that we produce. Um, Globally, something like 35% of all the energy and 60% of all the generated electricity is used by buildings, making them the largest end user of energy uh, in the energy sector more than industry and transportation.
0: And are we talking about, um, you know, retrofitting buildings or are we talking about uh, new buildings in terms of, of rethinking architecture in a changing environment? Hmm.
1: Well, both. Actually, uh, new buildings have really great opportunities. And then there's also some uh, wonderful things you can do with existing buildings. Uh, With new buildings, of course, you can start from the ground up. And if you look carefully at how buildings use energy, it's possible to uh, kind of be more efficient with all of those different end uses of the energy and, uh, and then add renewable energy to the building so that the net building energy use is actually zero or maybe even produces energy. So with new construction, you can really do a lot uh, to make your buildings not only uh, neutral in terms of consuming energy, but also become sort of a more positive uh, impact on the uh, on the electrical grid. And with existing buildings, it's kind of like a goldmine of uh, of energy savings that's available there. Um, we can kind of <laughs> we can kind of profit from the bad mistakes that we've made in the past, and by uh, taking these existing buildings and making them more energy efficient, we can save uh, really large amounts of energy. And we have some great examples of that right
0: here in Colorado. And we'll talk. About that in a bit. Um, Your group has set a very ambitious goal. You want to make commercial buildings in the United States 50% more efficient by 2050. In layman's terms, what exactly does that mean?
1: Well, uh, what we're really looking at is not only individual buildings, but whole sort of um, districts or cities uh, all have the opportunity to reduce their energy use. When you start with individual buildings, though, uh, you can reduce their uh, energy consumption for heating, for lighting, uh, for all kinds of different uh, uses uh, quite easily. And uh, we have examples of that, for example, with uh, the Byron Rogers project in downtown Denver, where it has reduced its energy use over 50%. Tell us a assumption. little bit
0: about that, um, how that works. Sure. Um, well, it, the
1: building was already needing to have some renovations done to it. Uh, it had asbestos issues and uh, so forth. And so when they were going to do these renovations, we kind of integrated energy issues into that same moment. And so it could be done cost effectively. The building was better insulated, new windows were put in, which look exactly like the old windows. It's a 1965 era building and it um, you know couldn't really change its appearance because it's historically significant. But we were able to um, reduce the energy use through the building envelope, and then put more efficient mechanical systems in. And as a result, the overall building uses much less energy.
0: And how realistic is your goal? By 2050, you want commercial buildings in the United States 50% more efficient. Uh, Is that really realistic?
1: Well, you know, buildings aren't quite like iPhones, so Uh it's a little hard to get them to take off that quickly. Uh, But the good news is that a lot of these efficiency measures are uh, very not only cost-effective, but they're sort of um, the good investments, you know. So for a lot of people, um, they may not necessarily have a lot of interest in climate change, but they probably do care about how much their building is valued. So by doing these uh, energy efficiency investments, they make the buildings – better for people, better places to be in. Uh, They make them uh, perform better and and cost less. And they also have sort of these climate benefits. But if I focus on the sort of the market issue, this kind of costing less bit, it's really kind of exciting. Um, For example, we worked on the Empire State Building in New York City. And working with the owner, we got a three-year payback on his building, and saved about 40% of the energy on an annual basis, which in that large building is about $4 million. Mm. So clearly, this is an investment that the uh, building owner you know, could do and get back quite quickly. And so that's actually driving a lot of energy efficiency things uh, broadly across the nation. <clears throat> we have lots and lots of, uh, of buildings going on now, which are getting retrofit, and it's becoming more and more of a Uh, a common thing. Um, We see it actually in terms of the energy codes are increasing as well. Uh, Building product manufacturers are getting on board, and there's more sort of business in terms of selling equipment and selling techniques and products to make buildings more efficient. So it's really a growing industry.
0: Now, you you do have to put in that initial investment, right, to to save money in the long run. How expensive is that for developers, uh, people who want to do this?
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. And, you know, the, of course, the answer is it varies. Um, <laughs> if you are a really smart, uh, kind of clever designer and investor, you can oftentimes do it for the same cost as you would have a normal building, right? And in terms of new construction, uh, you can get very high levels of efficiency without any additional investment just by designing your building so that it, you know, takes care of uh, shading itself to you know let in sunlight and so forth when it 's uh, appropriate, you know adding appropriate insulation and air movement all of those things are things that really don 't cost anything more when you 're doing the retrofits, a lot of times what you 're looking at is trying to combine that um, Renovation of the building with other uh, improvements to the building, which happens a lot. You know, people are always doing tenant improvements and other kinds of upgrades to their buildings. And if you just include energy in that, it doesn't necessarily have to cost more. Now, I'll put in one more caveat, which is that if you're just going to try and pin me down and say, I want to have a building that, you know, is is net zero energy, it creates as much energy over the course of the year as it uses, it's probably in the range of. 5 to 10 or 12% increase, but that actually does have a payback, that first cost.
0: Um, we're speaking with Victor Oljai of the Rocky Mountain Institute about architecture for a warming planet. It's part of our long-term reporting project on climate change and what it means for Colorado. Let's take a break, and when we return, we'll talk about special considerations architects need to make when working on older buildings. This is CPR's Colorado Matters. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Let's continue our conversation with Victor Oljai of the Rocky Mountain Institute. It set a goal of making commercial buildings 50% more efficient by mid-century. We're speaking about energy efficiency and architecture for a warming climate. Victor, uh, does the public really want all this change uh, to happen when it comes to buildings?
1: Uh, That's a great question. And uh, I would say yes. Uh, And the public wants it for different reasons. Not everybody has the same kind of uh, desires. But I think that, uh, first off, most people are concerned about climate change and they want to be responsible. Uh, They also tend to like buildings which are nice buildings. And these high-performance buildings tend to be nicer buildings. So that's desirable. And then the third idea is that really they're good market value. Uh, I'd like to sort of talk a little bit about the National Renewable Energy Laboratory building here in Golden, Colorado, which was built about five or six years ago. Two thousand, two hundred thousand square foot office building with uh, no zero net zero energy and market costs. So they got a lot better value for their building at the same price as a regular building. So for sure. They, they got something that is very desirable, and I think people want that.
0: For the people that are in that building, how does it, you know, this type of architecture design enhance your experience?
1: Yeah. So a lot of times you can't really tell. Sometimes you're in a building that, espe- especially with some of the historic preservation buildings, look and feel pretty much like other buildings. But I think the NREL building definitely feels nicer. You've got large windows that let in a lot of daylight. So you've got views, you have really good air quality. um, And it's so architecturally, it's nice, but also the interior environment is very pleasant. And making that interior environment pleasant is actually part of making it efficient. It seems kind of some way counterintuitive. You'd think, boy, pump in a lot of energy to, you know, make it exactly what we want. But it's actually connecting the building to Uh, the light and air and other things that are available and using them in a way that's appropriate so you're not over or under cooling things, people are more comfortable. It's just a better place.
0: When you look at the industry now, what are some of the latest trends people uh, might not be familiar with when it Mm. comes to this type of building?
1: Yeah, so I think that really probably the biggest issue is uh, how deep energy savings can be and how cost-effective they can be. So, um, you know, I've talked about a bunch of these projects that, you know, have really good paybacks. People generally don't know about that. They come up with the the question that you just uh, answered asked, asked me a minute ago, which was, how much more does it cost? which is uh, very common, but um, it's not really the issue. Um, The trends now are starting to get to 50% or better energy savings. So we get a lot of deep energy savings. And then we even get to these sort of net zero buildings, which produce as much energy as they use. Uh, So we were actually very involved in trying to get more people to know about this. We're going to have a conference in Denver uh, in mid-October called Uh, the Getting to Zero Forum. And we'll have about 400 people there. And we're trying to inform uh, real estate um, people and uh, investors, uh, architects and engineers on this big opportunity. Because really, that's what I see is that this is a huge market opportunity for people to not only make a better environment, but also to uh, do good and make money at the same time.
0: What about older buildings? What special considerations should architects be making when they're working on older buildings and retrofitting Mm -hmm. them?
1: Well, you know, if you've ever done a retrofit to your house, you know, as soon as you open up the wall, there's something that you didn't expect. So <laughs> so expect the unexpected. Um, but I think that uh, one of the really exciting things about older buildings, especially ones that are, say, 50 or 100 years old, is that a lot of times they were already kind of designed to work with the climate and to be low energy buildings. Because uh, back in the day, uh, you know, there wasn't the same amount of electricity and uh, Mm. energy that we have now. And so um, there's a building in Grand Junction, Colorado, uh, the Wayne Aspinall Courthouse, which is about 100 years old. It's a beautiful old building. And uh, it was renovated to become a net zero building. uh, And it's beautiful. I mean, you look at it, it's got high ceilings, it's got all that architectural detail. And actually, by taking advantage of those uh, spaces and light that were originally designed into the building, it was easier to make that adapted to a low-energy building.
0: What about uh, future buildings, new buildings? Will they suffer aesthetically because of climate change concerns, you know, how they look on the outside compared to these beautiful classic buildings? (laughs)
1: Uh, well, some people would say that the buildings we have today were suffering from anyway. So, regardless of their energy efficiency, um, but I think that's a. Uh, I, w- I would like to think of the energy issues as a real opportunity for architects. It's possibly one of the most exciting areas for architects and engineers to start to get into, because you can really um, understand that as a design influence. It doesn't have to be a uh, you know overtly. Uh, energy, geeky, machine-like, you know, covered with solar panels kind of thing. It can be a beautiful piece of architecture. And I I guess I would probably point you to the American Institute of Architects that has a uh, competition every year of top 10 uh, green buildings. And they're beautiful. They're gorgeous buildings.
0: Hmm. Well, Victor, thanks so much for being with us.
1: Well, thank you. I really appreciate your uh, time.
0: Victor Oljai is a principal architect with the Rocky Mountain Institute. He joined joined us to discuss the effect of climate change on buildings. This interview is part of a long-term reporting project focused on what climate change means for Colorado's future. Coming up, we hear what some Colorado employers think about a minimum wage hike. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters. From CPR News, I'm Andrea Dukakis. This fall, voters will have to decide whether the state's lowest paid workers should get a raise. Amendment 70 would gradually increase the statewide minimum wage from its current level of $8.31 an hour to $12 an hour in the year 2020. We asked people in our Public Insight Network, employers and employees what a minimum wage hike would mean for them. In the coming weeks, we'll hear from Colorado workers. Now here's what three Colorado employers have to say.
3: My name is Toby Gadd, and uh, my wife and I own Nuance Chocolate, which is uh, based in Fort Collins. We've been open for about two years now. What we're doing right now is taking the beans and running through a spinning blade, which breaks them apart. We have two sides of business. We have the production side. We're actually making the chocolates. And then we have the cafe where we're selling it and making drinks, that kind of thing. Right now, we've got eight people. On the retail side, there are tips. So on that side, they're making substantially more than what the new higher base will be for minimum wage. On the production side, they're making more than what will be the starting point, but not quite yet what will be the high end of that rate. So I think raising the minimum wage in Colorado and actually nationwide is a good thing. When people work hard and do what we need in a business environment, they deserve to be rewarded appropriately for that. Right now, minimum wage is so darn low, you can't really subsist off that in any shape or form. So with nuance, we're happy to keep working toward higher wages. Businesses are competitive, and uh, I like competition. That's a great thing. I want people to compete over products and development and services, those kinds of things, not who's being paid the least. If other companies are also required to pay what we pay, that makes us more competitive. It would be good for my business, absolutely.
4: My name's Barbara Kelzer, and my husband Jay and I own Westside Feed, which is a small animal and livestock feed store west of Loveland. How many employees do you have? We have three, including my husband, two part-timers, and then my husband. Thank you for Running a small business is really hard, and the profit margins we get are small. There are times where we just don't have enough revenue coming in, and because we want to make sure our employees get paid, sometimes Jay just doesn't cash his paycheck. We pay our employees much higher than the minimum wage, the current $8 and whatever an hour. And if we paid people minimum wage, I don't know that we could keep good employees. So why why do we need this? The market will dictate what people are willing to accept as pay. If they don't like a low-paying job, there are other jobs that will pay higher. And so we don't need anybody else telling us how to pay people. We can figure that out on our own.
2: My name is Tom Turner, I'm the Executive Director of Community Options, which is an agency headquartered out of Montrose, Colorado. Uh, We serve about 500 children and adults with developmental disabilities in a six-county area in southwestern Colorado. We have uh, about 200 employees, Uh, many of those direct service employees who are the people who work most directly with our clients caring for them, start at the current minimum wage. I'm very conflicted uh, Right now, about the uh, proposed uh, minimum wage amendment. Our agency would be uh, thrilled to be able to pay our people better. There's nobody on earth that uh, deserves better pay than the people that work for us. But the problem is this being a private nonprofit, we can't raise our prices, we don't have products to sell. Over 90% of our uh, uh, revenues come through Medicaid, and those rates are set by the state, and they don't even currently provide uh, adequate funding, much less uh, this uh, sizable increase that would come along with the uh, minimum wage amendment. So that's why I'm conflicted. On behalf of my very underpaid employees, I would be thrilled if this proposed amendment passes. On behalf of my agency, I'm absolutely terrified that it's going to pass.
0: That was Tom Turner, Executive Director of Community Options, Inc. in Montrose. We also heard views on the proposed minimum wage increase from employers in Loveland and Fort Collins. This report was produced by CPR's Megan Verlee. In the coming weeks, she'll also have the voices of workers on the minimum wage initiative. And we want you to be part of the conversation. We want to know how the minimum wage affects you or people you know. Just text the word HELLO to 720-358-402. We'll text back with questions and share what others are saying. Again, text hello to 720 358 4029 to begin the conversation. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. For many golf fans, Arnold Palmer will always be remembered for June 18, 1960. On that day at Cherry Hills Country Club in Cherry Hills Village, Palmer erased a seven-shot deficit in the final round to win the U.S. Open Championship. In the process, Palmer cemented his place in the game's history. He also made an indelible impression on then high school senior Bob Warren. Warren was there On that incredible day, he joins us now to talk about Palmer, who passed away on Sunday. Bob, welcome to the program. Thank you. Let's start by listening to a bit of a news account from that final round. Then out of the blue
1: comes a thunderbolt. Arnold Palmer, the Masters champion, starting the last round seven strokes behind Suchak, puts on a blistering rally. A man from the Pennsylvania Steel Regions ties the tournament record for nine holes with a 30, scoring birdies on six of the first seven
0: holes. You were actually working during the Open that day. What was your job?
5: Well, I was uh, a young man of 18, and I was carrying the cameras for Sports Illustrated. Ah. Huh. A photographer by the name of John Zimmerman, who was uh, apparently a fairly famous guy.
0: Huh. And, um... You, When do you remember hearing, uh, you know, that Palmer was moving ahead?
5: Well, the uh, roars throughout the golf course as he began his charge uh, on the birding the first six out of seven holes uh, were deafening. I mean, we were following the leader at the time, uh, Mike Suchak, and then we were following uh, ben Hogan because mm-hmm. he was a big star at right, the time. Right, right. But all of a sudden you could hear these repeated roars coming from the gallery and so John said we we better get over there and figure out what's going on and so we packed up and headed over and followed Arnold the rest of the way.
0: So you you followed the the cheers and and followed Arnold and um how loud really were the fans on that day? Was it something you'd never heard before?
5: <laughs> something I'd never heard before, absolutely. the Arnie's Army definitely showed up, and so there were thousands of people following, and it was difficult for the golf course to accommodate all of the people that were trying to follow Arnold. And uh, luckily, uh, because we had the cameras, we were inside the ropes So uh, we got to see everything, but uh, the cheers were incredibly loud.
0: The tournament's considered one of the greatest comebacks in golf history. When was the first time you remember thinking, Palmer is going to win this thing?
5: Well, by the time we got back over, uh, it was about the fourth hole, uh, it became Apparent that he was on one of his charges, and he'd begun—you know—he'd been famous for these charges and the masters and throughout uh, his career. So it was about that time that we said, "This is serious. He's—he's going to charge all the way around this golf course, and he could win this darn thing."
0: One of the interesting things about that particular tournament was there were three generations of golfers who could have won. Ben Hogan was the old pro there. Palmer was the young whippersnapper. And Jack Nicklaus was just an amateur at the time. What was the atmosphere like surrounding these
5: guys? Well, uh, when the tournament started, Hogan was the sentimental favorite. Because he was in the twilight of his career, and everybody knew who he was. He was the old master, and uh, the press coverage on him was tremendous. Uh, Palmer was—he had won the Masters that year, so he was in the news, but he was not uh, a heavy pick to win. And Nicholas was uh, not even—he was just an amateur in the field, and nobody paid any attention at the time. Until he almost won it.
0: <laughs> Who were you rooting for?
5: Well, initially I was rooting for uh, Ben Hogan because my dad was a great golfer and he loved Ben Hogan. And so I uh, just sort of uh, chip off the old block in that regard, I guess. But Palmer was such a vibrant, charismatic Big, strong guy that you couldn't help but just marvel at him when when he'd hit the ball, he just crushed it. Uh, my dad said, "Well, that swing will never hold up. That's just a he's a hitter, not a swinger." Boy, was he wrong? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he really was.
0: <laughs> uh, your family had a personal connection to Jack Nicholas, too. Is that right?
5: Well, my dad became – my dad was head of the press tent as a volunteer for the club and uh, got to know Jack, Nicholas's father, very well. And uh, they uh, got together and placed a bet on Jack to win the tournament. And, of course, nobody uh, thought Jack had any possibility of winning, so the odds were incredible. Uh, I don't think they bet that much money, but if they'd have won, they'd have won a lot of money. And uh, Jack came in two strokes behind. He almost won the tournament. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, You've seen uh, Palmer throughout the years, and you came together as recently as 2010. What happened then?
5: Well, I joined a club out in California that uh, Arnold had uh, designed the golf course, and he had built a house for himself, and... He lived out there a few months of the year. He lived in Bay Hill. He lived in La Quinta, California, which is where I was, and he lived in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. So I got to uh, be around him, uh, you know, several months, a year, and uh, got to know him. He was uh, just—I don't know how to describe it, but uh, all the money in the world and all the fame in the world never changed his humble nature.
0: You'll be representing Cherry Hills Country Club at Palmer's funeral in Pennsylvania next week, and I'm sure there'll be a great deal of reminiscing there. Aside from the 1960 U.S. Open, what will you remember about Arnold Palmer?
5: Well, his approachable demeanor and his humble nature. He was, uh, as I say, uh, he was making like $50 million a year, most of his life and uh, but that didn't phase him uh and fame i mean the guy had more fame he's probably the best known uh athlete in the world didn't phase him he was just a wonderful person
0: bob thanks so much all right thank you Bob Warren was an 18-year-old high school senior in 1960 and was at Cherry Hills Country Club when Arnold Palmer made a miraculous comeback to win the U.S. Open. Warren joined us to share his memories of that day and of the king who passed away on Sunday. (laughs) And that's our show for this Wednesday. Thanks to Michelle Fulcher, Anthony Cotton, and Michael Hughes. I'm Andrew Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters on listener supported CPR news.